0: is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast.
1: On this episode we talk to JEC club racer Holti and Richard West looks back at his time at Williams F1 in the wake of Nigel Mansell's championship win.
0: JECpodcast.com
1: Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast, the only podcast anywhere which is offering you the chance to win a jaguar xk coupe it's true we're of course selling raffle tickets for this superb car via jc.org.uk just click the shop button and scroll to the bottom you'll find it there it's a 2014 xk coupe x150 and it's the signature special edition so a special car indeed it was sourced from denton cars and is a superb spec five liter v8 with just 35,000 miles on the clock and it's an italian race in red and it could be yours for just two pounds that's how much the tickets are and to start this episode we have the first in our series looking at the stories from just some of the young people representing the haemophilia society their story how their bleeding conditions affect their lives and how their community will benefit from the money that you raise on this first episode, we're talking to Josh Taylor Rose. Hiya, Josh.
2: Hiya. Uh thank you for having me.
1: We talked to you in your car somewhere, and I understand you're just about to dash into work. Uh tell us more about yourself, what you do for work, tell us your story.
2: Uh yeah, so I'm uh Josh, 24 years old, just finished university up at Loughborough. Um, so I'm in between graduating and starting work. Um I'm gonna Work in finance, but at the moment I am a swim coach, so I'm about to dash off into 30 degree heats poolside. So, yeah, looking forward to it because it's absolutely hammering it down outside. So, yeah,
1: tell us about why you're involved with the Haemophilia Society and how the Haemophilia Society and the community around it benefits your life.
2: I'm one of the newer members uh, here at the Haemophilia Society, and I it's benefited to me because I went to an all-boys school and it was a rugby school. Now, um, the Haemophilia Society basically make people aware in society of people who have bleeding disorders and general knowledge on like, bleeding disorders such as Haemophilia. Um, so Haemophilia, in short, means in my DNA I'm deficient of a clotting agent, um, which is known as factor eight. And what that means, essentially, is if I injure myself, I do not have the gene that people normally have to help them clot and heal from an injury. So what would happen with me um, is I would just keep bleeding, bleeding, whether that's uh, internally or into a joint, and that's going to essentially cause me some discomfort, soreness, pain, et etc. Et so going back to, yeah, when I was at school, I went to a rugby school. So I felt pretty left out, um, it's not, it doesn't affect huge amounts of people um, across the UK, like you hear the big diseases such as cancer, etc. cetera. Um, so I felt pretty much on my own being the only one with someone with haemophilia at a rugby school, the only one who couldn't play rugby, um, due to my consultant advising me, I'm not allowed to play rugby due to my condition, etc. So a couple of years ago, I joined a lads and dads weekend to find out a bit more about what the society does. And that's where I met all these wonderful people. And basically I realized that I'm not the only one. I don't know, suffering is quite a harsh word, but I'm not the only one in this situation. And there's other people out there who will happily share their story, share their experience, share their tips. And that's what the society does. It just raises awareness and essentially spreads the word
1: and awareness is important josh because if you get injured while you're out and about either at work or out on the street or going about your daily life there are specific things that then need to happen to ensure you're safe aren't there yes
2: yeah, so um wherever i go whether it's abroad to work university etc i always have my medi tag around my neck which says i'm a haemophilia haemophiliac um, additionally, in my wallet, I've got a bleeding card, which has got all the details um, of who to call, who to speak to, what not to have. Uh, for example, aspirin its the worst thing for a hemophiliac, because um, it essentially thins your blood. Um, and we don't really have great clotting factors in our body anyway, so thinning it will make it even worse. Um, so yeah, about five or six years ago, I'd say if you... Bumped into Joe blogs in the high street and said what's cancer they know exactly what it is and you say what's hemophilia I wouldn't say people are as aware as it as I'd like to see it be in society but essentially having that card means there's going to be no issues down the line if anything was to happen if I was to go unconscious or whether um, I couldn't respond to questions as such from the doctor or um, met like emergency assistant team um, but yeah, essentially, that leading card or my Medi tag will hopefully prompt people to know what haemophilia is and how they should react in a worst case scenario.
1: So, obviously, we're here talking about this because this is the chosen charity for the JEC this year in the raffling off of our fantastic 5-litre Jaguar XK sports car that you listening can win for just £2. Hopefully more than that because you'll buy books of raffle tickets to support the Haemophilia Society. Uh, But, Josh, tell people why they should buy these raffle tickets and what difference it will make.
2: Yes, so um, the Haemophilia Society... um, Obviously, like any other charity, they need donations to help them run. Um, A lot of charities rely on their donations to effectively operate as a charity as such, not only to operate, but also to help fund or donate to um, researchers. Um, A current topical research right now is the uh, gene therapy studies out there, um, things like that. Um, if that comes to um, the commissioners and that gets passed for both forms of hemophilia, such as type A and type B I'm a type A then that could potentially um, help a lot of us sufferers as such going down the line in the future um, it also helps with funding awareness for situations such as the blood inquiry um, so that's very typical right now and yeah hopefully it will Hopefully people spend more than just two pounds for one ticket. Hopefully they buy reels. But that money will go a long way, whether that's research, as I mentioned, whether that's into public inquiries, whether that's just a general operating of the charity to help spread more awareness of what haemophilia is. Um, So, yeah, dig deep in those pockets and get spending. You might win
1: absolutely that's the thing it could be you that drives that car home and josh in a couple of words just sum up how the society has changed your life for the better
2: uh, it's made me more confident uh speaking to other people who have it makes you realize you're not the only one as i previously mentioned but generally it's a, it's a good bunch of people who have a common goal as such like every charity like every business in this world we want to move forward from where we are today And yeah, we want to progress always. Like you can always be better. You can always do things better. And you can learn from living through operating if you're a business, etc. So yeah, I'd say in one word, the Humphillist Society, I would use as family. We're a tight-knit family. So and i want that family to grow
1: josh taylor rose thanks for joining us
2: thank you thanks for listening
1: so do what you can buy as many tickets as you can afford they're just two pounds each and available now from jec.org.uk just click the shop button scroll to the bottom of the page there and you will find the opportunity to win this fantastic jaguar xk coupe 5 litre v8
0: memories of motorsport richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast more stories from a lifetime in
1: motorsport now with richard west as richard remembers 1992 with us now which saw of course the 46th season of the fia formula one championship and it was won by the man who was the nation's hero at the time, Nigel Mansell. He broke all sorts of records doing it as well, the first driver to win nine successive races in his season at Williams that year. Richard, what are your memories from 1992 and seeing Nigel Mansell take the crown?
3: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it was the, the nation's favourite. Nigel had his huge following in the UK. He became. Absolutely, everybody's favourite driver. And to be fair to him, Nigel knew how to play the crowd. You know, he he was a very brave racing driver. He was super quick in his Williams era. And every time he appeared, anywhere he went, you know, Nigel was the man. And I think it was the Hungarian Grand Prix, wasn't it, when he crossed the line and won the championship. I'd left TWR the sort of late in 91. And I'd been picking the hills a bit that summer. And I was watching Formula One very closely. And I was close to doing a deal with Texaco to get involved in a Formula 3000 team, which at the time I had an interest in. And I remember watching Nigel win the championship. And I thought, well, that's really good news, you know, because A, it focuses everything on British motorsport. Uh, but a few weeks later, when the Italian Grand Prix came round, Nigel had engaged with Frank Williams in a discussion over payments. And Senna at that time was by far... The highest paid driver, you know, reputably being paid, or reputedly rather, being paid a million dollars a race. And Nigel, having won the championship, felt that he, you know, should be on the same sort of money. And um, it didn't happen. And in fact, I remember it very well. I was watching, I think it was the Monza Grand Prix, and Nigel was on a live press conference at the end of the race. And Gary Crumpler, who at that time was one of the marketing guys who worked for Frank Williams, came up to him during live television and passed him a piece of paper, which he opened. And it was Frank's final answer about what he was prepared to pay Nigel the next year. And obviously, Nigel was very put out by it. And he publicly said he wouldn't be racing in Formula One in 1993. And it created a firestorm. You know, Frank obviously received many thousands of letters of complaint, you know, about the fact that Nigel, the current world champion, wouldn't be racing in the UK because actually, Nigel very quickly put together a deal with Carl Haas and Paul Newman and went to race for the Newman Haas IndyCar team in America. The relevance of that to me was that Texaco money went with him. Um, Carl had done a, job, a brilliant job of convincing Texaco that they would have, you know, the, the current Formula One champion in the kart series, the IndyCar series, and of course, Texaco—it was too good an opportunity to miss. So they branded. Uh, Nigel and the team for the 1993 season but for me it had a real benefit at the end of it because many of the sponsors who were unhappy with what had happened with Nigel at the end of his championship winning year when he went off to race in America started to kick up badly and Frank and I were back in contact for an old friend and Frank said will you come back as director of sponsorship and marketing services and help us rebuild the team in Nigel's absence because you can imagine if you're a real British Nigel Mansell fan, the person who's taken his seat is none other than Frenchman Alan Prost. So that wasn't exactly too popular in some courses either. So the 92-93 winter period for me was my return to Williams, but with a great interest because uh, I knew number of the team very well and I knew Nigel quite well. And of course, there he was out there in America straight away, super quick in the car. And uh, as it turned out, you know, winning races immediately and almost the Indy 500 in the 93 season
1: mm. how did you go about rebuilding things at williams then after such a well pr disaster in many ways they lost that key driver and yeah that although being a british uh, racing team and a british constructor that had just won yeah as you say people weren't exactly the biggest fans of frank williams at the time
3: no they weren't and there was some really unpleasant stuff that arrived in the letterbox you know and on the answering machine over that winter we set about a completely new strategy i mean we we really turned Williams had had a reputation at the time for being brilliant on track and also, uh, you know, having very strong uh, pet pair, driver pairings. But there was criticism, and, and I don't mind saying this, you know, on air, there was criticism from some of its sponsors about the way that they had been looked after, you know, during that period, because results meant everything, and sponsor support wasn't to the level it was. I said about going around the existing portfolio, which at that time included Camel cigarettes, R.J. Reynolds. We had Labatt's brewing on the car, we had Cannon, uh, obviously, you know, as a Japanese sponsor. And we really went into overdrive. Uh, we went and visited with Frank, uh, you know, with me on, on many of the visits. We went and saw the sponsors who went to their PR agencies. We really put down a very solid case for just how strong Williams was in an engineering sense and a commercial sense with me restructuring the department. And it, you know, I had some brilliant people there at the time. Uh, David Owen, uh, Anne Bradshaw, the you know legendary press officer, Annie, really. Annie came over from CSS. We were joined by Jane Gorard, who I knew very well from my days at Marlborough, where she'd worked for an agent. And then there was guys like Ian Cunningham and Gary Crumpler. And we set about restructuring the department to give maximum returns away from the circuit, because we were obviously hugely confident in Prost and Hill for the 93 season. And we did it. And with literally a couple of weeks to go before we got to the first race down in South, second race race down in South Africa, um, we added Sega computer games and Sonic the Hedgehog, which created a few laughs because we put a graphic on the side of the car of Sonic and their little blue legs with red boots on. And of course, Alan being such a diminutive little Frenchman, when you popped him in the car with a helmet that had a hedgehog painted on it, some people commented that he wasn't a lot bigger than you know, the famous character in the Sega computer game. So, yeah, we did well and we went into 93 and were hugely competitive until we got to Donington when we were given a masterclass of racing in the wet by Senna, who absolutely blew us away. in front of Tom Wheatcroft, and, you know, much to Tom's amusement with his top hat on, presented the trophy to Ayrton for winning that sensational race when I think he went from seventh to fifth to leading the race through the Kramer curves in the wet, which I don't think too many people have. Done before or since. Well,
1: of course, it then led on to Damon Hill taking the World Championship, uh, which sort of brought things back to Williams in a way. And after those, they were really the heydays for Frank Williams and his team, weren't they? Does it sadden you now to see what has ultimately become of the Williams team?
3: Well, a two-pronged answer to that. It, it, it also meant that Nigel came back as well because in 94, 93, we were absolutely dominant, you know, with, with, Pro, uh, with Prost and with Damon. But in 94, when we lost Ayrton at Imola, we were faced with the incredible challenge of what you really do when A, the team, and the world of Formula One was in such shock. And when we went around and polled all of our sponsors and the Renault dealership worldwide, it came back that we needed somebody very, very strong. in fact, um, I was tasked with going off to America to meet with Carl Haas, I'm sadly gone now, but I met with Carl in Chicago and with Bernie on the phone. We negotiated a deal to bring Nigel back to do four races for us um, at the Rothmans-Williams Renault team. And the reason that everybody polled for Nigel was that, A, when you look back at some of the titanic battles that he had with Senna, you know, the Barcelona, with their wheels interlocked inches apart at 200 miles an hour at the end of the main pit straight, people had an immense respect for Nigel and the people within the factory At the williams factory had an enormous respect for nigel and you know with bernie's assistance and a great deal of negotiating down in florida and with carl's approval nigel was released to come back and do four races and we took him to brown sachs and did this enormous um press launch of him in the car which attracted tens of thousands of people to the circuit the circuit allowed the gates to be open for the public to come in nigel played to the crowd and of course Whilst Damon tangled with Schumacher in the hairpin at Adelaide on the final race of that championship year, Nigel went on to win the race uh, in the Rothmans-Williams Renault FW16B, I think it was, and of course it won us the Constructors' World Championship. So, yet again, Nigel, you know, his head was held high and he did an amazing job, but the following year, Frank released him again and off he went to McLaren and it wasn't such a happy time, but it was the glory era, as you rightfully say, for Williams, and I think difficult times in formula one and clearly you know difficult times for williams over over the recent seasons and i do hope that somehow however it's achieved whether investment in the team or you know people come in and share or buy ownership i do hope it gets the name back up there because 17 world championship titles and 117 race wins it deserves to be up there mixing it with the best not down the back of the grid where it currently is
1: tom robinson from swallow's independent jaguar is next with his racing diary
0: You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast.
4: Now, we've actually got a test day this Sunday. Um, We managed to get one over at Pembry, which is a couple of hours for us over in Wales, which is quite a short circuit Um, not one I've actually driven so that should be pretty good but since then um, we've had the car in the workshops Um, we've gone through some of the modifications that we talked about in the last episode so um, just to recap on some of those so we talked about that we're potentially having some slight issues with our engine temperatures so we've come up with a couple of modifications on that note so is what we've done is um, we've added some ducting to the front to try and direct air through the front intercooler and interradiator so there's no room for any of the air to travel around it rather than through it we've got quite a lot of uh, front surface air on the front of the XJ with some quite large air gaps around around each side of the radiator so we have managed to block those off and and try and force as much of the air through that so that's one of the points that we've looked at and we've hopefully addressed and we've also just increased the um, the duty cycle very slightly on the water pump just to speed that up in the hope that we're gonna keep in control of these engine temperatures now looking at the weather it looks like we are potentially gonna get a dry test day which would be good is is really what the car needs to be honest is we've we've had a lot of driving in the wet this season so far with very limited track time so with such a new car we are sort of trying to iron out all of these niggles and get ahead where we can so we've also had the new wheels arrive from Braid Motorsport so this was um, where we were talking about we're trying to shed as much weight from the vehicle as possible um, and we found a little bit of an edge with the wheels that we can find a lot lighter wheel um, and also keep the same size brakes on the front um, which we've now had arrived from Braid Motorsport, so they're all fitted, we've got a set of new tyres on the car so we'll also scrub those in on the test day ready for the next round at Donington. Now just running through a couple of the other checks that we did on the car so um, as we would do before we use the car anyway we all give it, always give it a full vision inspection and a spanner check and check all the geometry etc. Now one of the things we did come across um, which seems to be a little bit of a common issue on these um, Probably where we're sort of pushing these more than they're they're intended or originally designed for, but we've had issues with the synchros on these gearboxes. So um, is what we're finding is I'm assuming it's where we're changing gear a lot quicker than they would have done normally. Um, and in a, a I guess a race environment, we are probably a little bit more aggressive on the gears than we should. But we keep having trouble between third and fourth uh, gear chain coming down the box. There's a little bit of grunge on the synchro. So we've actually removed the gearbox, um, and I have got a spare gearbox which we've put in for the test day just to make sure we've got no issues which will then give us a bit of time to open up the current gearbox that I've got which is um, the one we use for the racing normally and just make sure we can get that rectified before Donington because it's a little bit frustrating um, with it crunching as you're coming down the box and we obviously don't want to cause any damage to the gears if they're not being slowed down correctly so that was something that we weren't expecting but hopefully we can get rectified in time before Donington which I'm sure we can but we have got this spare box in the car which is just a to be honest with you just a used gearbox that's a low mileage box we've just put some fresh oil in it and put it in so we do run standard gearboxes they are the Katrag 290 there's nothing too special on that um, but we do run an external gearbox cooler just to try and help with keeping the gearbox temperatures down and we also have a temperature sensor from the box there so we can see exactly what's going on um, so yeah we're, we're heading off to Pembury on Sunday um, we can then data log the car hopefully it's dry so we can iron out these little kinks that we're getting and we can sort of spend the day scrubbing the tires trying a couple of different setups, seeing if we can find any better lap times, seeing how the car feels with a little bit less weight in it, and and hopefully try and get ahead, ready for Donington. Now I'll give you some updates, um, probably from Pembury, for next week's uh, podcast, so I'll let you know exactly what we're up to on the day and and how we got on.
0: You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk
1: Well now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast we're talking to one of our racers and we're talking to a man that goes by the name of Holty. it is Michael Holt. Uh, Michael you're originally from Wakefield aren't you, you're a Yorkshire lad but living down there in Kent now I understand.
5: Absolutely Yeah, Shaky Wakey is my hometown uh, but uh, now living in uh, the glorious medieval city or town of, uh, of Sandwich on the east coast of Kent.
1: Very nice. And uh, running a uh, office interiors business down there, I trust all is well with you through these challenging
5: times. Uh, yes, not too bad at all, thank you, Ryan. We've had a, a, a bit of a uh, stop-start year, but uh, things certainly seem to be uh, picking up as we uh, progress into the year
1: well we're here to talk about jaguar racing of course and your fantastic uh, history within jaguar enthusiast club uh, race series and uh, let's start firstly by describing the car that you're campaigning at the moment for those of you who haven't watched the racing or seen michael in action uh, tell us more about the car that you're currently racing okay well um the
5: car itself is a um an x300 of 1995 vintage um, started life as a police car in manchester um so as if its life wasn't hard enough to begin with um it then got written off probably chasing somebody around manchester one day um, and a gentleman called chris palmer bought it um who runs xj motors down in uh turkey and um, he slowly turned it into a race car over, over the next few years racing with a Jag enthusiast club and uh, it was very successful campaigning the car um it's been all over the world over the over the last 14, 15 years. It's, uh, it's been over to Daytona. It's been to Spa. It's been done circuits in France. Um, and I got hold of the car three years ago. Um, as, as you know, a car that was, was race-ready, it was doing okay. Um, I'd run Class A in an XJ40, wanted to step up to Class B, and um, the car was available, so I pounced. And um, she's... Um, She's a bit battered around the edges, bless her, as you would expect, but um, she she does okay. And we we won Class B um, two years ago, stepped up to Class C last year, and won that as well. So um, yeah, she's um, she's she's a good old girl. She's a much better car than I am a driver. <laughs>
1: well it is amazing to see these big jaguar saloons battling it out door handle to door handle and those regular listeners to the podcast will also be familiar with tom robinson's race prep diary that he has on these podcasts as well uh, in a similar car Uh, what does it take to take a rather battered as you described x300 road car and turn it into a race car what goes into these machines
5: um, well, that's a very good question, and you're probably better off, off asking Tom of well things, but in, in all honesty, because um, the, the car, is, as, as I said, I bought it as is, but yeah, other than, you know, you make a few safety changes to it, so you've got to stick a roll cage in there, you've got to um, plumb a uh, fire extinguisher in there, you know, electric cut offs so all that type of thing. Um, and then it's just a case of getting the weight out of it because if you can imagine you've, you've got a weight is your uh, your enemy as far as racing is concerned everybody will tell you that and it's something I certainly learned over the last few years and um, so yeah it's a matter of cutting out all the door schemes cutting out the rear bulkhead fiberglass panels where you can take the glass out replace them with perspex all these types of things so it goes from being a, a luxury Jaguar road car to be in a, uh, a very stripped out noisy bean can with, with um, engines of various sizes and specifications up front and uh, yeah we just me um, just press them as, as hard as we dare to be honest
1: and of course once you've prepared your car then you need to prepare the soft squidgy bit that sits behind the steering wheel and of course driving a race car has a particular set of skills what's your personal story and how you got into motor racing in the first place and ended up here Uh um, well
5: i would go back to your comment regarding soft and squidgy i, I yeah that, that sort of describes majority of the JEC races to be honest and <laughs> um, i thought um I've, I've always had an interest in Jaguars, so uh, my father's had one, and you know, I was the guy getting my dad half in Spanish to, to do something or other, whether it be under the Mark 10, 420 22 XJ, whatever. Um, and so, I guess petrol and, and fumes were in my blood. I got into track days over the years, again with various different cars, um, and then Facebook did its worst, and you know, one evening sat there. Browsing the pages as you do and lo and behold um, a car came up and it was Again race prepped had done its job. Somebody was moving up a class um, Went to see it And um, took the wife which is always a if anybody's looking to do this my advice would be always get some um, The the partner to buy into it as well um, And get their approval because it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of commitment to do this Believe it or not. So you need them on side um so yeah, it's just so and the the car came available, I did the deal a week later went down with a, a bundle of cash and a trailer and, and next thing I know I'm doing my art test which enabled you to um, to get out there racing. And uh, yeah, before I know it I was sat on a grid at Sneckertin. Um surrounded by lots of other Jaguars making lots of noise and couldn't absolutely couldn't wait to get going. It's fantastic. I haven't looked that since.
1: Tell us about that ard's test because those who are in racing have all had to do one at some point or another uh, but to some it might be a complete mystery as to what that actually involves just describe it for those people who've never come across it before
5: okay well again it's very very simple um basically oh you don't need to be able to race what you need to understand is is what the car is doing so you're you're taken out uh, by instructor uh, for a half hour session basically on on a track uh, on in their car um and it's it's just knowing how a car handles, so you know when to brake, how to accelerate, how to turn which all sounds very simple, but it's a little bit different on a track from from being on the road um and you know changing gear or that type of thing and uh, it's a simple multi choice questionnaire examination afterwards, so again fairly straightforward an afternoon at a circuit, Um, in all honesty, I I did a track day uh, the day that I did mine as well to make the most of it, and um, yeah, it was very simple, very straightforward, and not hideously expensive
1: and of course then the real learning begins when you finally get to your first grid and you do your first race but i'm picking up on something you you mentioned there and you touched on was the level of commitment that you have to put in as a club racer and just explain a bit more about that because you spend literally every weekend or every other weekend on the road with the car on a trailer getting to all the different venues across the country don't you it does take a lot it it, it does
5: Um, and it's but you know what? I wouldn't change it for the world. It it's, it is a commitment, both physically, financially, mentally, all of those things. Um, uh, it takes a bit of um, it takes it out of your liver as well. That's not much. That big about us, <laughs> the, the, the evening activities, um, but it is it it is worth it. So yeah, usually we do six weekends a year, um, usually sort of once a month, uh, and that historically is comprised of. Going up on a Friday, staying on circuit Friday night, qualifying Saturday morning, race one Saturday afternoon, and then race two sometime on Sunday and travel home. So it's a weekend away. And again, depending on where you are geographically, um, that can be a a nice, straightforward weekend or it can be a a god-awful weekend. And um, sadly with me being in East Kent, if it's not Grand Hatch, I've got a long way to go. But um, it takes up every mile. I, I I, I wouldn't change it for the world.
1: And then, of course, sometimes you do all of those miles. You turn up at goodness knows o'clock in the morning. And uh, like we had at Snetterton two weeks ago, it gets rained off with torrential rain, doesn't it? But it's all part of what you have to put up with when you're racing. It can happen.
5: Snetterton sums it up really well. I, I qualified at Snetterton way down from where I should have been. There was a problem with the car. The, the limited slip diff wasn't doing its job. Um, so it wasn't limiting nor any of the slip. Um, so every time I was trying to um, come out of the corner, I was spinning up the inside wheel. Uh, this is a genuine race driver's excuse, by the way. I'm not making this up. <laughs> um, so, um, so we, yeah, we, we qualified way down from where we should have been. And my only hope there was rain. Um, so we spent, and a few of us, you know, when we realised that Tom was on pole, on a fast circuit and his beast of an x300 we thought we're in trouble here And um, so my only hope was rain because you know, I, I do i do like it in the wet so we did a little rain dance a few of us um i think in hindsight we probably overdid it uh, because as, as we were down there in the paddock uh, in the assembly area actually waiting to go out for our race it started to rain and so I'd gone from a, a lower thinking, I'm not going to enjoy this race, to thinking, oh, you know what, here we go, come on rain. A little bit of a smile across the face, then it really kept coming down to the point where actually you couldn't see outside the car, because bearing in mind the cars have had all their heaters and all, and all that type of thing taken out, so they do tend to mist up on the inside, which can be interesting, um, to the point where the heavens really did open, and then it was a point of back to that very low moment again, so all in the space of about half an hour, going from low, high, back to low again. Um, but yeah, it, it's all racing, and that, that's one weekend. But other weekends, you can be out there, and you have a fantastic three days. Other weekends, you know, you think, "That's it, I'm going to pack it up and fill, fill, fill in the towel." But then you sort of reflect about it and realise that actually you're having a really good time with some really good friends that you've made over the over the years, and you can't wait to get out there again
1: and that friendship's important isn't it i get the feeling that the paddock at the jc races is a little bit like the meeting of a family really and uh, when i was preparing for this interview i sort of asked around and i found out some things that you're famous for uh, firstly famous for being called Holty up and down the paddock also famous for the fact that you can't operate with in the morning without your morning brew i'm told that and also famous for your barbecue spicy sausages tell us all about that
5: Ooh, well i mean there's a secret obviously but um <laughs> yeah when you, when you talk about us being a family it's more like the adam's family quite honestly but we are a family i think yeah um and yeah no the old sausage you can't beat a sausage um, and any race driver will tell you that um without a sausage you can't function so we have a we're very lucky down here in sandwich rather where we've got a, a sandwich um, sausage shop um and fantastic butcher makes the sausages and um yeah, we just sort of make an effort, really. I, th- I think the Jag Races are very different from anybody else in the paddock, um, in that we are just one, one team, and we're all, we're all in it together. You know, don't get don't get me wrong, when the red lights go out, we all hate each other. as simple as that, and we are desperate to get in front of whoever is in front of us, um, and to keep whoever is behind us there. But as soon as you come off, and and you've you've you've, raced, you've done your best, you've done your worst. Um, yeah, it's all handshakes or elbows, as it is nowadays. Um, and it, it is. And, you know, I, I do whatever I can to keep us all together, whether it be having a few beers, making a barbecue, whether it be the sausages or, or or whatever it needs to be. We, um, we're we a good set of guys. And, again, a good example of what that would be my first season. I had a, a bit of an off, shall we say um and me not being the best with the spanners um the car was rebuilt and back out for this race without me doing anything but making a brew for the guys who did know what they were doing so um it, it, there's a real camaraderie about it which you just don't see with other races in the paddock it's, it's um and again i'm not just saying that but i think the people that, the, the other guys that we race with um would also admit that uh, i think they're a bit jealous of our camaraderie to be honest Mm -hmm. well how would you recommend someone
1: that's listening to this and thinking that perhaps that camaraderie and that family spirit is something they want to get involved with how would you recommend someone gets involved with racing what's the top tip you really got into motorsport through campaigning a tvr at track days didn't you and took the step up from there so what advice would you give to someone wanting to do what you're doing now
5: well, well, again, you know, I would say, yeah, I've, I've put a GVR around the track, but by the same token, I've put an MGF around the track. So, yeah, it, it, that, what you drive is really not not important. It's all about wanting to do it. And and if you if you're really keen in, and you've got an interest in this, then I would suggest first of all make contact with Colin Porter at the JEC uh, and Chris Robinson, um, who run our racing for us, and and they're doing a sterling job. And um, the guys. They'll they'll put you in so get you get you your odds. What I would say as well is that this thing is, is a lot cheaper than you would imagine. I, I was speaking to somebody just the other day who said who oh, asked me the question as to how much it was, and I told him the answer, and it was literally half of what he thought it was going to be. Um, you know there are a plethora of race ready cars out there that have no owners at the moment, or people are looking to get rid of. Um, that are not massively expensive, that are half the price of a Renault Clio. So, you know, the choice is yours. Do you want to be running around in a Renault Clio or do you want to be racing a four-litre straight-six Jag? Um, I know what I'd be doing. Um, And, and yeah, you know, make some inquiries, ask ask the relevant questions, but above all, just be prepared, um, which I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I, I would. Say, but uh, again, what we tend to do as well within them JEC, and again, I was very lucky. Is you know, your, your first year, you you like a headless chicken. You don't know what you're doing, where to scrutine, where to go for scrutineering uh, You know what kit to buy. You know oh, what tyres to buy. Do I need this? Do I need that? You you, you always tend to find that somebody will always be able to give you good, honest advice. And you sort of latch onto one or two people, and they'll really point you in the right direction. And, and again, I was very lucky. And uh, so, and again, Colin and Chris are, are ideal for that. So, um, my advice is: yeah, speak to Colin, speak to Chris, and um, do the sums. Get the commitment of your partner, if you have one, to say that um, yes, my dear, of course you can go racing, and um, and get them involved in, and get yourself involved, um, and, and just get out there and enjoy yourself.
1: Absolutely. Well, a perfect example of just how affordable it can be. Just recently, I saw an advert for a race-prepared XJS, uh, three-point-six-liter car, uh, ready to go, turnkey, for just four thousand six
5: hundred pounds. And that's the type of thing I'm talking about, you know. So that's an XJS, race-prepared, ready to go, for for what four and a half grand.
1: And so, in relative terms. JC racing very very affordable as you say and uh, if you are listening to this and you fancy giving it a go you fancy joining this family and uh meeting up with Michael holt and his amazing sausages um <laughs> why not give Colin porter a much. shout as uh, as as Michael says you can get in touch with Colin very easily colin at jcracing.org.uk and uh, Colin will introduce you to the guys and get you involved with JC racing to sum it up in a brief phrase michael what's the best thing about jc racing for you and some of the greatest memories that you have over your your previous couple of seasons
5: i would say the friendships that i've built um the sausages that i've eaten eaten, the beer that i've drunk um and you know that first trophy that you get when you know you've worked your little socks off you've got there you put your romper suit on you put your little booties on you've gone out there you've done your best and actually you get something back for it at the end of the race a special moment
1: Michael Holt thanks for joining us you're
5: welcome thank you very much
1: that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is
0: the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.